Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about today. But what it is, is a clip from the new uh, Taylor Swift album, which dropped a few minutes before midnight last night. The album's called Midnight. That's called Anti-Hero. I I don't hate it. Um, I think you can thank me for the fact that we are not talking about the new Taylor Swift album today. You're welcome. I mean, we've talked about Taylor Swift more than we've talked about probably anything on the nose. I'm not saying that with either pride or shame. All right, what we're going to talk about instead are two movies, Confess, Fletch, and Athena. You might have heard me say before the news, it's hard to imagine two more radically different movies in tone and purpose. Uh, But that's good. It's a good thing. Um, We are down to two panelists today because uh, Helder Miro, who was scheduled to be with us, had a conflict come up. See, what I want to do in the future, and so Pants, just jot this down. When this happens in the future, what we should do is take all of Helder's emails about what we're talking about or whoever, whatever guest, you know, if a guest scratches. And then we, we, we need to get like a robot voice, like the robot in Andor. Uh, and then the robot will occasionally chime in and say Helder or wh- whoever's missing, say their, their comments. All right. That's the kind of idea that occurs to me, you know, in flashes. Uh, all right. Joining us today is Rich Holland. Uh, Rich Holland. Good. It'd be good if I could say people's names correctly. Rich Holland, uh, a principal and co-lab founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs at the city of Hartford. Mercy Quay is founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project. Uh, they and I will be the panel today. We are talking first about Confess Fletch. Let me just set this up. The Fletch novels started in 1974. They were written by Gregory MacDonald. They uh, were very laconic in nature and structure. The first Fletch novel is 100% dialogue. There are are essentially no narrative pieces. And um, they are crime fiction of of a sort. Uh, They were converted into a series of Chevy Chase movies in the 1980s and now Fletch. There's some other iterations too. I just can't keep – I think Jason Sudeikis was maybe – Fletch? I don't know. Uh, but now we're back with John Hamm as Fletch. Fletch is a now former investigative journalist, uh, and he gets into scrapes, and he doesn't seem to be too worried no matter what happens. Uh, let's hear a clip. Here's John Hamm as Fletch Roy Wood Jr. Uh, as the cop who's trying to figure out a murder that took place uh, in an apartment where Fletch was staying. He is Inspector Morris Monroe. Here we go, A1. Well, I either just walked into a frame-up or... Uh Somebody from my past is trying to get revenge on me. Who hates you? Besides Grace. Well, I did put quite a few prominent people away when I was a very famous reporter at the News Tribune in Los Angeles. I looked into your criminal record. And? 
bad check charge, <laughs> two contempt of court charges, number of non-payment of alimony charges. 100% of most of those were dismissed. You're a bit of a shady character, Mr. Fletcher. <sighs> but I am adorable. Come on, guys, look, all of the pertinent information isn't even in yet. Did you even talk to or interview this, this next door neighbor, Eve? She had some very interesting thoughts about Mr. Tasserly. When I showed Eve a picture of Laurel Goodwin, she said that she remembered seeing her the night of the murder. With the man who fits your description. Well, Eve is a stoner. I wouldn't trust anything she has to say. We found your fingerprints on the wine bottle. So? It's the murder weapon. All right. Mercy Quay, get us going on this. Confess Fletch. Uh, how did it work for you? Uh, this works. I mean, it is completely, it's beautifully chaotic. And I think Fletch works. I think, you know, this is one of the pieces that ever since John Hamm left, um, you know, ever since Mad Men been looking for John Hamm to really shine i through in, you know, he, the appeal that we know that he's best for. And this works. Him as Fletch actually works. I think, you know, I used the phrase propaganda in, in emails and no one questioned it because I think it's pretty clear what it means. I'm, I'm getting less and less interested in shows that glorify police work or movies that glorify police work. Um, and I think that this has this beautiful balance of what does it mean to be a, a show where an investigation has to take place, so you have to include cops, but being really mindful of the, I don't know, societal tenor around cops uh, that is right now, that is the moment that is right now. Um, they give a couple nods to that. There was this beautiful line at the end. It was like, I'm happy we were able to team up because I don't know who you know, the who people hate more cops or reporters. And then they shake hand in this moment that I thought I was going to puke at. But then Ham says, or, you know, Fletch says at the end, he was like, oh, it's definitely cops. It's yeah. it's definitely cops to make. <laughs> and so it is, it is an, I mean, if a cop flick can be woke, that is what can Fletch Fetch is. And it is, they, they, it has these moments, these beautiful quotable moments all throughout the film that I really enjoy. It is as chaotic as the unbearable weight of massive talent with Nicolas Cage. And I think that I'll be quoting this, this entire piece from now to at the very least the end of the year or the next time we watch a beautifully chaotic film for the nose. Yeah. I thought I noted that same exchange between Roy Wood and, and John Hamm. Uh, and it reminded me a little bit also of um, the first Rush Hour movie where Chris Tucker at a certain point says that his mother tells people that he's a drug dealer because uh, she doesn't want anyone to find out he's an L.A. policeman. Um, and, and the, you know, I, I think they sort of do deal with that a little bit. I, I don't think the cops are particularly glamorized in this. Although, Mercy, I, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of enjoyed this character, Grizz. Uh, Grizz is a, a South Asian Asian. A uh, policewoman who's, I think, a little bit smarter than everybody else around her, and maybe a little bit more of an on ramp for most of us. I mean, I feel like of all the people in this particular movie, there's nobody that I I identify. There are people I enjoy, but I don't really identify with. But she sort of feels she sort of felt like an almost sane center in the middle of all the madness you're talking about. Oh, absolutely, and I think that she's the character that the audience can relate to and under. I mean, and, you know, oftentimes we get that character in a storyline where in, you know, it's a newbie cop 
or a cop trainee. I mean, this is this is the trope that we see in all sorts of cop shows where in order for the audience to fully understand, they have you have to be looking at it through the through the lens of the newbie. But I think that they give her a lot more in the way of, I don't know, credentials or I'll even say savvy because she's the she is the cop doing most of the investigative work. At the end of it, they give her 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 flowers by saying, you was like, yeah, no, we cracked the case. Well, it was mostly Grizz. Um, also thinking about Grizz, one of the things that I realized, what I was wondering throughout the film was if the character could have been anyone else. Like if this was a colorblind casting um, role. And at the end, I think we get the first line that seeps into her characters. Like her name is Griselda and right. Okay. So that could have that, you know, they were at the very least uh, casting for a woman. Um, the, but I didn't care any moments where we, as an audience needed to believe, or, you know, that character had to be a Southeast Asian woman. And so I, I really appreciate that about um, the storyline for her character. anyway. So Rich, uh, I think you're going to have a slightly different take uh, on this whole movie. I'm not hugely different. Um, uh, in, in terms of the, some of what Mercy was talking about, the, um, uh, the space that it holds culturally. Um, uh, yeah, I, I echo that quite a bit. Um, I think that there's uh, the lovely part of, um, of how the Grizz uh, role was played here uh, was written anyway, was uh, that it was written with all of the sort of um, uh, the, the kind of character style of, um, of women who know a lot uh, who are capable and understand and have to constantly be presenting their ideas in a way that their, you know, that their bosses or superiors who are men uh, could feel comfortable with their competence. Um, you know, that just kept echoing through this thing. You know, her curiosity was, uh, uh, was what carried the film, I thought. Um, uh, but I, I also felt that there were so many, um, phoned in qualities about this piece. Um, I thought that Ham's uh, portrayal was um, was in its own right chaotic uh, on top of a very chaotic uh, plot line. Um, I felt that we he couldn't they couldn't figure out how to direct them. You know, are we going to direct them like this character? Or are we going to like leverage how Chevy played this character? Or are we going to uh, let John Hamm be John Hamm, the leading man, right? And um, it never quite settled into into any particular um, pattern of performance, which ended up feeling like Hamm's portrayal was all over the place. And um, and it, then there were like incredible uh, potentials, like um, uh, like Marsha uh, like Marsha Gay Harden in there. Um, uh, who had the opportunity to play this completely over the top uh, character in this in this film, and it just never got anywhere. You know, so many of these incidental things that happen never moved anywhere, and it actually left me longing for, of all things, Chevy Chase. Um, <laughs> in that, in that, uh, which is you know the first and last time I promise to ever say that. Um, in that there's, there's a way that Chase showed up where he actually really didn't care. You know, you got the sense that he did not care about the outcome 
of what he was engaged in. And he showed up as, you know, you know, I am here. I'm Chevy Chase. And that feel that felt like it matched um, Fletch's persona better. You know, that he wasn't going to try too hard. He was going to that things were going to evolve around him. And somehow he was going to step out of this in some kind of heroic way, you know, without having really invested all that much of himself, which is a kind of interesting character to me. Yeah, Um, I I do think that you with him, you know, first of all, I think the character kind of connects, not not the way that the Chevy Chase played him. Last night, I actually went back and watched a little bit of the Chevy Chase performance just to make sure I remembered it right. Um, And by the way, that film is a much flabbier film, too, like nothing happens for long stretches of time uh, in that in that movie, whereas this one seems to be packed with all kinds of stuff, chaotic, cluttery stuff. Yeah, but stuff. I, I think Ham is trying to connect the role to where it really needs to be connected to, which is, and this is going to seem like heresy or apostasy or something, but which is to Cary Grant. I mean, this is kind of a Cary Grant part, right? This is Roger O. Thorndike a little bit. It's kind of the guy who doesn't really necessarily have any terrific skills, but he's smart and funny and amiable, and he doesn't seem to get flustered very easily, even when he's in a lot of trouble. I mean, just in the same sense that Thorndike, it takes him a long time to register how much trouble he's in in North by Northwest. And, and Ham's Fletch is kind of like that, too. He just doesn't really seem particularly worried about the fact that he's the prime suspect in a murder investigation. But, but Rich, I would sort of say that I think there's a difference between phoning it in and, and trying to achieve a kind of offhand charm, of which Cary Grant obviously was the master. But I, to me, that's what Ham is going for here. Yeah, it, I guess the phoning it in part for me, uh, I, I wouldn't um, put it on the actors. I kind of put it on the director, on the direction. Um, uh, I felt that, you know, that getting John Hamm in there to do the John Hamm thing, to go sort that out, John Hamm. And, uh, you know, and, oh, Marsha Gay Harden, she's awesome. Let's just let her do her thing. And, you know, didn't seem like it was anybody really in control of, you know, what was being delivered in the film you know, with the hopes that this this assembled uh, crew, this assemblage would make it happen. Yeah, I, um, I agree. There's nobody cracking the whip here. People are just sort of uh, trying to do or just doing the stuff that they like to do. We should say just by way of context, Marsha Gay Harden plays a Contessa. Uh, there's a sort of layered series of Contessas here. Fletch is romantically involved with, I guess, her stepdaughter, I think, uh, played by Lorenza Izzo, Angela Degrassi. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden shows up as this very, very florid uh, kind of sexy older woman who's apparently married. I don't know. I'm not even going to try to explain who the characters are. We should also say Kyle MacLachlan is in, his, in here as a germaphobic uh, art dealer. Um, John Slattery has a little cameo as the kind of editor who's always bossing Fletch around. Um, it, it's, you know, a rel- relatively deep and interesting cast. Um, and I don't know, Mercy, to me, like I didn't love Knives Out the way most people love Knives Out, but but I, I this this is the same kind of fluff. I just think that it fluffs better, uh, and <laughs> fluff is probably the wrong word. But you know what I'm saying. There, there's not a, there aren't big stakes here. You just want to watch people kind of be funny and charming. Yeah, and I think you know. I, I did love Knives Out in the same way that I loved, gosh, what was that Adam Sandler movie that just came out with? Uh, Uncut, with Uncut Gems? I don't know. Uh, Uncut Gems. Is, was it Uncut Gems? No, I don't think so. It, it's a it, it's a Knives Out sort of okay. film where he and 
he and Jennifer Aniston end up on a boat and there's a murder. Um, and I think that this is the same kind of cut from this cut from the same cloth as Knives Out in that film, where what we're getting into is a you know unwitting um, main character who puts themselves you know put themselves in the middle of an investigation, find themselves in the middle of an investigation, um, and really feel as though that they're they're smarter than the investigators. I think one of the ways that this plays really well is, uh, you know, contrary to feeling feeling that Ham's Fletch is aloof, I actually feel like he's playing along. He cares very little about, you know, uh, uh, obstruction an investigation. In fact, he thinks he he's a report, an investigative reporter of some repute, right? He says that often. He thinks of himself incredibly highly. He he might be a bit of a narcissist. I think he plays that really well in in a way that John Hamm plays a narcissist really well in Mad Men, um, which makes me question the you know moral grounding of John Hamm. But that all aside, <laughs> I I think the comparison between him and Chevy Chase's. Um, uh, 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 Fletch for me is that John Hamm, I think, has an awareness of, or at the very least in this rendition, has an awareness of being a womanizer isn't actually okay and having sketchy opinions about, about, I mean, you know, having an awareness about the way that cops show up or the way that um, patriarchy shows up. This Fletch has that awareness in a way that Chevy Chase's uh, Fletch did not have an awareness and sort of leaned into that, not ironically, um, which, you know, in 2022 doesn't play well. Right. We should say that, um, you know, one point we haven't made about the cops. So Roy Wood Jr. is the sort of most visible principal cop here. And and he's at least humanized to the extent that he has a new baby in the house. He's, he's not getting very much sleep. He actually shows up with the baby at one point. And the baby doesn't look that new. The baby looks like the wrong age for a little, you know. but, um, So there might be a continuity. You know, the baby's like 14 months old. Yeah, maybe a con- continuity problem with the baby. But there's something kind of funny about that. Um, I, I also want to just tip my hat to a little bit of the writing here. We're going to play another clip for the movie. You're going to hear Lucy Punch as Tatiana Tasserly. I refuse to try to explain who that character is because I would be, I couldn't actually. Uh, and uh, once again, John Hamm as Fletch. Every single piece I curate is bespoke. Ooh, bespoke. I love that word. What does it mean again? Bespoke? Bespoke. Uh, it's when an object bespeaks. It right. beteaches us something about ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I think I have my poll quote. Anyway, you're currently separated yeah. from your husband, yeah. Owen Tesserly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sure you heard of the uh, unfortunate incident at his townhouse, the, the murdered woman. Yikes. We've been reporting on it in the paper. We were totally shocked, of course. Um, well, Owen's been away traveling in Europe. Right. So... I'm always looking for ways to actuate the senses. (laughs) Yeah, of course. But if I could just follow up, you would make me kind of a hero back at the office if you could give me any kind of clue as to who might have committed that murder. Frank, sorry, I can't help you there. 
So, I mean, Rich, one of the things I'm not willing to die on the hill of this movie. It's it's you know it's fluff and it's funny and I had a nice time watching it. Uh, but I actually do think it's maybe a little bit better written than some of the other some of its predecessors. Um, I mean, even playing around with the idea of bespoke. And another thing that they do here, and I I think I credit Zev Barrow, who's I think the co-writer of this movie, but he's who's a very funny writer. They do something that you see in Richard Lester movies and Robert Altman movies, which is there are often conversations going on in the background that seem like they might be pretty funny. You almost want to turn closed captioning on or something so you can figure out what else is being said besides what's being said in the foreground. There's a security guard at a yacht club who just seems to be having conversations oh, all the time. It's <laughs> the best. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, you, my God. This, the whole thing when they were uh, – there was this scene where they're – letting where the security guard is letting folks into a clam bake event and every single vehicle that drove up he like went over what his various food allergies his shellfish allergy concerns are and one of the most humorous parts of this is you know in film you set a thing up you know, and the way they set up the clam bake so that you knew this was what was going on was through this character of this of this guard that was letting folks into the clam bake. So you automatically knew that it was an exclusive event. Uh, you knew what the content was, the context was. So instead of giving you this big wide scene, they give you a detail scene uh, to set up what was coming next. And then they did this peculiar thing where they then moved to wide scene. So they kind of flipped the script a little bit, right? But while they were doing the widescreen and you were moving away from the security guard, you're sort of still hearing him talk yeah. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> the car is about his shellfish to save him some potatoes because he can't eat shellfish. It's just hilarious. <laughs> the writing in this thing was, was impeccable. You know, it was, oh. fun, it was witty. It was well done. You know, it, it just, was excellent in so many ways, I mm-hmm. think. Even even down to, I mean, they keep that theme with the, with the security guard throughout the entire movie. He's just kind of talking to us, <laughs> even when he's not on screen. He's just sort of talking to the audience and is being ignored by the other characters throughout the entirety of the piece. But I, I got to tell you, the bet to me in this entire movie, the best writing, the part that like hooked me in was the second uh, that John Slattery and uh, John Hamm came back together mm-hmm. um, uh, to do their thing. Uh, John Slattery, uh, who was, you know, Roger Sterling, shows up as a um, as a uh, uh, an editor of a paper and in uh, trying to get an exclusive from Hamm you know, should there be one? And just the dialogue between them, the rhythm between them, Mm -hmm. uh, that felt tight. You know, that felt (laughs) solid. And I get the sense is, you know, they have a rhythm. You know, they've they've worked on a rhythm for season after season after season, and it came through. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, great point. Uh, By the way, Mercy, I'm being told by the Control Tower, the movie you're thinking of is called Murder Mystery. The Adam Sandler uh, movie in question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we should probably take a break here. Uh, the movie is Confess, comma, Fletch. There's some scenery chewing and there's some funniness. And, uh, you know, it, it's a pleasant way to pass an evening.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back with the nose. And Mercy Quay and Rich Holland are with me today as the panelists on the nose. We're missing Helder Mira, but uh, we'll... We'll soldier on without him. And speaking of soldiers, yes, uh, Athena is kind of a war movie. It's a French-language epic action tragedy directed by Romain, Romain Gavras from a screenplay by Gavras and, two, and somebody who's two people's names. I'll mess up if I try to pronounce them. Well, Elias Beldekar. I think I can – Belkadar. See, I, I knew I'd make a mess of them. Um, it's um, – it's hard to explain. It takes place in what's called, I believe, in uh, Paris, a banlieue, which is something like the projects uh, here in the U.S., but maybe an, an architectural effort to, to create something that feels a little bit more village-like. Uh, this particular neighborhood, however, or project or whatever you want to call it, uh, is um, heavily populated by by Muslim people. Uh, they begin the movie feeling aggrieved, uh, a young Muslim man or I think really boy uh, has been killed in what appears to be a police shooting. Uh, this turns into uh, a 10-minute opening sequence uh, in which a police station gets attacked. Uh, and according to Mr. McPants, our producer, it runs 10 minutes and 22 seconds and there's not a detectable cut. In other words, this you know, pretty large, chaotic, violent opening scene that seems to have been filmed uh, in one take. Um, there's a lot of other sort of filmography stuff that will be worth talking about or filmic stuff that would be worth talking about, except that I'm not very good at it. Thankfully, the panelists are better than I am. But um, uh, we're not – I don't think we're going to play a clip here because everything's in French. Uh, this uh, – the movie is about a standoff. Uh, it's about four brothers, one of whom is the boy who dies at the beginning of the movie and how the other three um, brothers process – uh, their anger and grief uh, and their role in this standoff. So, Rich Holland, uh, why don't you get us started this time? I, I'm, I guess I'm just interested to know, for starters, I mean, like is not the right m- word, but how did this movie work for you at the level of appreciation? Okay, so at the level of appreciation, uh, it's a recommended movie. I would suggest that people see it. Um uh, did I particularly enjoy it a lot? You know, and if I weren't on the show, would I uh, have seen it? Um, actually, yeah, I probably would have seen it. Um, would I have been disappointed about it? A um, little bit, but still worth seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of it has to do with, um, again, this is another two in a row of like really chaotic movies. Um, and, uh, and this one was chaotic 
and it had this sort of video game, like super hyper real video game quality about it. And, um, and the violence exists in it at that level, right? You know, um, uh, at the level of, um, of detaching itself from any kind of a uh, sense of humanity. And, um, and that there doesn't seem to be points in this place very often uh, where there's any hesitation prior to the violence other than hesitation around self-preservation, right? You know, it's not, it's a matter of that we will act violently and the only way that we slow down and think twice about it is when there's a, a possible ramification that in our actions, we will be hurt ourselves. And, um, and there's, it echoes a little bit of the LA riots, you know, and here's where I have some challenges with that uh, for myself, right? You know, for my own recommendation that in the midst of the LA riots, uh, I was sitting with a group of people who were appalled at the, you know, the violence and what they were seeing. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, well, this is what's coming. And, um, and here I am, you know, decades later, um, uh, looking at something that wants to kind of suggest, yeah, this is what's coming. And uh, it makes me recoil, right? And, uh, and possibly that recoiling has to do with, you know, uh, the young men that I'm raising mm -hmm. and, you know, and my thoughts around that. And, um, but ultimately this thing is just um, graphically beautiful. Um, uh, the use of light, the use of color, uh, the, um, there's a lot of learning that seems like it came straight out of Kurosawa here uh, in how we create um, personalities uh, through color and composition uh, to these various factions and then see how these, um, how these uh, gangs and, uh, and people with, and fundamentalists and police all come together with their own themes in, in kind of orchestrated, um, in these orchestrated sequences, these sort of um, operatic ballet-like sequences, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought a little bit of Apocalypse Now when I was watching parts of it, the same way that the Coppola gets a lot of sort of beauty and excitement out of firefights and and, you know, aerial explosions and stuff like that. I think this movie does that. You know, Mercy, Rich said something really interesting. and I'd like to sort of play around with it a little bit here. He used the phrase video, used the term video game, and which I think is a really interesting point, although my question would be. Is it filmed like a video game or is it filmed about a bunch of young men who almost have lost track of the fact that they're not in a video game and that that, you know, a lot of the participants here, and I'm not talking about the protagonists, but the kind of followers along at times, it's like they haven't really distinguished the kind of situation they're in. Yeah, and I think that a lot of what we see in this film, um, you know, can be compared to a video game in that your point is well taken young boys get carried away. <laughs> I mean, this is this this film is a story about what happens when young boys get carried away. But I also think, you know, we can in, in our emails, we compared it to the out of theater Iliad. I think it's a really great comparison to call this an epic tragedy um, where there's a vengeance story um, that an entire community can be galvanized by. Um, and there's this sort of way that the major motifs in the Iliad that, that shine through are things like 
glory and uh, fate, but wrath and pride as well. I think that the um, main character, um, one of the main characters, Kareem, who finds himself as this, you know, self-appointed or quasi-leader of this this militant faction of young people who are up, who are, you know, rising up is is conflicted because on the one hand his two brothers are not with him his mother wants him to come home but he sees he sees this need and, and is probably you know intoxicated with the power that the other young people in the community in this project right um have, have given him and i think that he literally goes down in the blaze of glory um in 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 ways that you can see the parallels between the Iliad pretty neatly um I think that the filming here is fantastic you can see where they have thrown in some drone shots there there were there were some kind of there there were uh there were long sequences where there wasn't a a, a single cut I think big pants um pointed that out and you can it puts you in in a way that uh, Zero Dark Thirty is filmed. It feels gritty. You feel like you are at war. This is what happens when a a war uh, film is filmed in a neighborhood, right? Um, and you get all of the same kind of of emotions. You feel like you are in a war zone. You feel like you um, relate to the characters, and you. At the very least in this piece, I'll say you don't know who to side with for a very long time because there are brothers who are on opposing side of the issue. And then we find out later on that maybe this entire this entire unrest was um, the conceived effort of folks who wanted to start an unrest. And I'll, I'll, I'll let maybe Rich talk a little bit more about that point. Yeah, I mean, Rich, I'm, I'm glad to have Mr. Visual uh, here because I think there's also a way in which, you know, not unlike the Iliad, at a certain point, Troy is kind of a, a you know, a, a bottle episode, as they now say in the business. Uh, the Greek camp is its own kind of bottle episode. And then there's a field in the middle. But, you know, there's a way in which this this commune or this banlieue, you know, it has, first of all, you know, with all this night, these night shots and things flying around, a kind of a kind of Escher like look to it with its yeah. uh, esplanades and its towers. And I mean, it, there's a way in which it 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 becomes the nightmare, right? It becomes the setting for a nightmare. And I think visually there's some pretty cool stuff that's done with that. Indeed. And um, and there's a there's a lot that's done with um, these anamorphic lenses uh, going up really high. So almost feels like it's a drone with an anamorphic lens, which, you know, I can't imagine like actually making that work. And um, and uh, and the the beauty of that is is um, if you recall the the sort of opening sequence of of Game of Thrones, right, mm -hmm. um, where you had these animated um, uh, cities and, and that kind of collapse and roll into each other in a very Escher-like way. Um, the, the way this drone moves and then drops into scenes um, provides you with this similar sense, right? You get the sense that you're looking at enti the entire universe, right? Which is what it ends up delivering to you, that it helps you recognize that this isn't just the city. This isn't just, this is everything, you know, and the light drops off around the edges so that you can't see anything but this light piece of flat earth that we're on. And, uh, and that piece becomes the symbol for all societies, 
right? It stops being about this milieu in, in France. It starts being about what's happening, what's happening, what can happen everywhere. Um, in a lot of ways, um, while we could talk about uh, Greek tragedy as well, um, there is a distinctly Shakespearean aspect mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and, you know, and to me, the cue, the hugest uh, learning cue came, to me came from Rand. Um, in, you know, in, in how um, Rand kind of did the same thing, right? It said that um, this feudal, uh, this small family-based uh, feudal war going on is a metaphor for all of, for all the world. Just for the audience sake, we're talking about the Kurosawa Ran, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. Continue. Yeah. And, um, and so that there is something about the theatricality of that um, uh, that is, you know, that's elegant, right? Um, part of what ends up being lost for me in that is um, we, for me, the metaphors go deeper uh, when I could feel myself in them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I couldn't feel myself in these characters, right? Um, because their expressions were almost entirely, you know, uh, kind of the same. All the anger was the same anger. Um, you know, all of the fear was the same fear. You know, all of the, um, of the resolute moving forward was the same resolute moving forward. And, um, and you know, I couldn't see the characters as much as the symbol of the characters. Hmm. And, you know, that to me was uh, was where I detached from this thing and where it became a video game, right? Well, you and know, just so Mercy, just, just for the fun of talking about it. So if there's an argument against what Rich is saying, I would say it's the performance by Donny Ben Salah, who uh, plays uh, Abdal, who's the most complex, malleable, and sort of transition-making character uh, in this movie. And he's the one you can see thinking. And so the question is, does he deliver as m enough? I, like, I really want to see this guy now. He was, I think, kind of a Bond villain in the last Bond movie. And now he's this guy in this movie. I want to see him just be a leading man in something, you know, yeah. that has kind of a different set of stakes. Because I think he's terrific. He's really exciting to look at. And, and so I'd be interested in your thoughts, sort of uh, based on what Rich said, whether he's able to anchor this movie in thought and fear and, and detectable emotions that we can identify with. I think he carries his movie. I think he is the only relatable character that has um, depth to him in a way that is believable. I think that the movie tries to give us um, depth in other characters that just falls flat. I think the cop character with the nail polish, cool, we get it. You have a family, but we're not getting much more out of him. He doesn't really have a story. He, he feels to me um, a character that is sort of placed in the, in the film, but isn't really explained. I think Abdel is a character that, you know, he, we, we, we begin with him in the film and we actually end with him in the film. And there's the symmetry when, when we're looking at the, the flow of his plot line, right? We see him go from the uh, decorated French soldier who is begging his community to not take up arms and is begging his community to remain calm um, while also being grieved, he, uh, uh, grieved that his little brother was um, killed potentially by the hand of police. And I think watching his trajectory has, was the most interesting because 
it's far more complex than even Kareem's or, you know, whoever the heck Sebastian is, yeah, right? That's... What we see coming from him is, and I'll, I'll explain Sebastian in a moment, but what we see coming from Abdel is someone who is very by the book to someone who is just, uh, it, the rage is contagious in, in this film and he catches it at the end um, when Kareem uh, meets his end and, you know, watching watching this, uh, I'm, I'm giving a bunch of spoilers to the folks who haven't seen it yet, but right. and maybe, Kareem maybe we should certainly... Yeah, maybe we shouldn't do too many spoilers and we shouldn't do... do Sebastian also is, a, is, we could spoil a kind of surprise, whether it's a fairly yeah. set up surprise or not is a different thing. Let me just ask you a different question, uh, Mercy, and then I want to get Rich in one more time before we run out of time, but... Could this movie have benefited from women characters? You mentioned the mother earlier on, early on, but she's she's basically a name on a phone screen and like is barely seen at all. And I, I mean, Helen in the Iliad is a much better developed character than any woman in this movie. Would that disrupt the kind of male rage and folly of all this, or you know, or could some some depth have been provided if it, they'd maybe taken a couple of women and done something with those characters? Well, I don't think it would have had the video game feel if it had any women in it. To to Richard's point about it being a video game feel, I think this is what happened. There are a couple. There are a couple women fit, uh, foot soldiers here that we don't actually get much depth into. Um, could it have benefited from it? I mean, listen, I'm a woman. I think that when <laughs> I think everything can benefit from a woman's touch, but I actually don't know that this storyline needs a woman because it feels kind of and you guys went with the classical references i'll go with more of a um a, a foolish one and this to me feels like a planet of the apes what happens when young boys get together um planet of the apes or even um uh lord of the flies what happens when young boys get together and follow in and you know uh uh antics ensue i think that if there were women involved sorry to say it might have been a far more reasonable um end i, I think that, uh, and i'm going to offer wild generalizations here i think that the the point of this film was to show that chaos ensues when young people and i don't think i don't think it was a gendered film i think as much as it was a generational film what happens when young people are angry yep. the kids are okay to some degree but the kids will burn your buildings down if they feel aggrieved on a different note. So, Rich, I've only got 60 seconds here, so maybe this isn't even a fair thing to bring up because it seems like something you'd have a lot to say about. But, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mercy mentioned Abdul and the fact that he has kind of a military background. Well, I mean, they first of all mentioned his grandfather was an Algerian gunner in World War II, yeah. you know, and then he's been involved in some kind of police action in Mali. And there's... There's a colonialism issue here, right? I mean, it's never really all that far away, but that's the other subtext of this movie. That this is these are the fruits of French colonialism. So, um, I was trying to find it, and maybe I'll find it during the break and make and add it to the recommendations. Um, there was an incredible movie uh, that was made that I think I saw in the '80s. It was a French film um, about. Uh, you know, these basically Algerian ghettos in France mm -hmm. um, and uh, the efforts to, to placate and to reduce uh, um, the, the impacts of that kind of um, uh, colonialism um, and, uh, and how that utterly fails no matter what you try, right? Uh, that damage is done 
and short of reparation uh, for that damage, you will get to the inevitability of chaos coming back at you. And in that film, much like in this one, uh, that the chaos was one that we that you trained us for. Um, and uh, that's that to me is a lot of what's at the under uh, at the um, undercurrent of this, right? You know, one to Mercy's point, I think it is about you know what happens when young people, and I and I will say young men specifically here, um, uh, don't get out of a, one particular form of narrative that's desensitized, right? Mm -hmm. That's certainly a part of it, but then the other part is a warning shot. Right, uh, the warning shot that um, uh, that when we are at that point of vi violence, it is no longer about you know uh, identifying the enemy. Mm. You know, it becomes that um, all of structure uh, becomes um, uh, you know becomes. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, we're gonna have to stop there. Uh, if we're gonna have any time for endorsements at all, so let's do that. Uh, the movie is Athena, uh, so approach it with caution but interest. All right, so uh, time for some thank yous. Uh, the young and great Dylan Reyes is in here as the technical producer. Jonathan McPants is, of course, uh, almost always the producer of The Nose, and that obtains today our wonderful panel. Mercy Quay and uh, Rich Holland are here. They're going to make some recommendations. So, Mercy, uh, I'm just going to take a wild guess that this will have something to do with outer space, but uh, you have the floor. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. How did you know? Okay, so I've got... Uh, four recommendations that have to do with outer space and one for uh, fundamentalists. Um, so the Leidner Planetarium in New Haven is Yale's Planetarium and they do live showings every Tuesday. I would highly recommend folks get kind of get down there, support that planetarium. Um, it's your homegrown planetarium if you're in New Haven. And so definitely um, want to go out there and check it out. Um, every uh, live show every Tuesday, but then Star Trek product and Star Trek War Decks are two uh, pieces in the Star Trek universe and they are animated pieces. Lots of fun to watch. Um, Avenue 5 season two with um, Josh Gad and uh, Hugh Laurie. That's out on Hulu and uh, there's two episodes in. So if you haven't seen season one, you have a little bit of time to catch up before diving into season two. And then finally, a favorite podcast of mine, stuff you should know that it's so funny yesterday's episode was on fundamentalists fundamentalism and um the trouble with it and so after watching uh, athena if you wanted to learn a little bit more about fundamentalism feel free to pick up that episode of stuff you should know all right very very good very well done very very compact uh rich holland how about you what are you going to recommend i'm going to give you two and they're both films um uh, uh in in the after seeing um, um, uh, Athena, I wanted to see again uh, a French film called La Haine, H-A-I-N-E. I figured that's what you were reaching for in the previous thing, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Matthew Kosovitz, mm -hmm. um, gorgeous story about the frailty of the Uberman. And, uh, and it's uh, delivered with a kind of 
uh, authentically gritty classical filmic economy um, that uh, that spares you of you know of this emotion these grand emotional sweeps and brings you right smack into the middle you know of what it means uh, to be human of what it means to have a vision of yourself um, as grand and to fall to your frail to uh, you know fall by your own you know lack of humility and understanding of your internal frailty, right? Gorgeous. The other thing is a brother movie um, uh, called We the Animals. Uh, it stars uh, Sheila Van, Raul Castillo, and these three boys who, oh my goodness, what was captured in them was amazing. And this story is about how the, the degeneration of their parents' relationship uh, became a kind of symbol and um, and the architecture uh, for the uh, the generation of the care for these children and how you know in the absence of of whole society or whole family our kids are left on their own in um, in beautifully performed lovingly filmed tremendous movie. Oh wow! Okay, so um, just to build on what Rich said, if you're Going to watch Athena, or you already have watched it, I would recommend an essay in Art Review from 2020 by Louise Darblay, The Cultural Revolution of Paris's Banlieue. It's all about the movies, and it begins with La Haine, uh, the one that Rich was just talking about, the Cassavetes movie. And it really kind of helps you understand what's going on in this movie and what's been going on for a while. There, there have been a bunch of these movies. Um, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to go super lowbrow here with some consumer product recommendations, and they're both hands-free. The first one, and I can't believe I'm recommending this on public radio, and I also apologize for the fact that it kind of has a power source. You can see the plug-in or you use batteries. It's called the iTouchless trash can, uh, and it is a trash can with a lid that opens if you just put your hand anywhere near it. And when it was first ordered and uh, brought to my house, I kind of sneered at it. I was not the person who ordered it. It has changed my life. If you work in the kitchen a lot and you're holding something in two hands and you want to get it in the trash can and you can just wave it, you know, wave the drippy hamburger plastic bag or something at the at the lid. It is such a joy. Uh, and then the other one is a kind of shoe called Kizik. These are hands-free shoes. They're slip-on sneakers. You tie them once. And then you just step in and out of them. I love them so much. I got them last week for my birthday. Um, I haven't stopped wearing them ever since. So I'm sorry to be so lowbrow here when my panelists obviously have high culture on their minds. Uh, but that's all I can do for you. Thanks for this uh, panel. Thanks to this panel and to Pants and to you for listening. <laughs> 